You're listening to sermon audio from Grace Mosaic, a congregation of the Grace DC Network in Northeast DC. For more information about our church, visit us online at gracemosaic.org. I want to preach this morning on the subject from exclusion to embrace. Now, that's the formal title of my sermon, but if I were feeling a little bit sillier this morning, the title would be, Don't Yuck God's Yum. (laughs) Don't Yuck God's Yum. There's a woman named Alyssa Nguyen, spelled N-G-U-Y-E-N, who is a Vietnamese food blogger who's based in Texas. She posts on YouTube and TikTok and other social media. She's got over a million followers and constantly just posts videos of herself eating things. And people watch her eating things, and they like and comment because that's the world we live in now. (laughs) A little while ago, she posted a video of her eating a dish that in Vietnamese is called hop yit lom, or in Filipino cuisine is called a blue egg. And what this is, is a fertilized duck egg. So instead of the typical eggs we would eat with a yolk inside, there is a baby duck inside. And you eat that duck, uh, you eat that egg after boiling the egg for an hour, then you crack it open upside down, you put some lime juice and salt and pepper on there, you slurp out the liquid, and you take that baby duck and you eat it all at once, and it's supposed to be scrumptious. People responded to this video, though, uh, with some visceral reactions. Maybe you're having a visceral reaction there in your gut. They said things like, ugh, disgusting. Ah, but they went further. They took it to the area of morality. They said, this is cruel. They said, I could never eat that. And Miss Nguyen, uh, she went ahead and within the video, I think she anticipated the kind of comments she was going to get from her largely Western audience when they viewed her eating this dish. And she said this simple, simple but powerful sentence. She said, don't be out here yucking my yum, okay? Don't be out here yucking my yum. What does she mean? I think that she meant that don't apply your cultural standards of what is good and clean and normal to my people's standards of what is good and clean and normal. Your norm is not my norm. Your cultural way of eating is not my cultural way of eating. Don't yuck my yum. And as silly as that phrase might sound to you, I also think it's a phrase born of some vulnerable experience for Miss Nguyen. Because as recent history has shown us, yuck food quickly becomes yuck culture, quickly becomes yuck people. At the onset of the COVID-19 pandemic, anti-Asian and in particular anti-Chinese fervor and rhetoric began to spread. You'll remember fueled in great part by our then-president at the time. But an example that actually bears out in the data recently is that Chinese restaurants lost $7.4 billion in revenue in 2020. That was 18% times higher than any other type of restaurant. The Yelp, the app Yelp, that review, where you review restaurants, they had to start a whole task force of fighting anti-Asian racism, where people were getting on Chinese restaurants' accounts and just posting about the disgusting things that happened at this restaurant when they never actually went there. 
Don't we see that all the time? Yuck food becomes yuck culture becomes yuck people because food is the gateway to fellowship and fellowship is the gateway to acceptance, to embrace. And that's what this passage here is about. It's about food and it's about fellowship and it's about acceptance in the church. If it's going to be the church in the book of Acts is going to have to move from exclusion to embrace. That's the story of our passage, and that's the story of our whole life as the people of God. We need a cross-cultural conversion. So I want to look at the text today simply by looking at the movement of first exclusion and then to the movement of embrace. So let's start. Exclusion. Our text today tells the story of a collision of crossing of paths between two men and between their representative communities. That's the story. That's how it's structured. There is Peter and there is Cornelius. Keep that in mind. On the one hand, you have Peter, a culturally Jewish man from the region of Galilee. And on the other hand, you have Cornelius, who might be ethnically Syrian, but he is a Roman captain. He has worked his way up in the Roman military to be in charge of 100 soldiers in the midst of a 600-soldier cohort called the Italian cohort in a city called Caesarea. It was named in honor, of course, of Caesar, Augustus, by Herod the Great. It was a port city in northern Israel close to Syria. By this period of time when this literature is written, it's a mixed city of both Jews and Gentiles, but there are a lot more Gentiles than there are Jews, and the two groups, as you might imagine, were in deep conflict with one another. Just a generation later, the Gentile ethnic Syrian population would slaughter much of the Jewish population in the city. Josephus estimated that 20,000 people died in one hour in AD 66. Most of the local soldiers in the city themselves were profoundly anti-Semitic. They were anti-Jewish, but there were some Gentiles who honored and even converted to Judaism there. So that's the social scene of the text. That's the context And both Peter and Cornelius are going to have to go through some changes together so that their paths can collide in an embracing kind of way. They both need to go through a conversion experience. They need to gain some knowledge together. They need to gain some new ways of seeing things. See, in the book of Acts, conversion for a lot of the characters is a gradual process. you got to resist the mindset that conversion into the kingdom of God is a one and done. Conversion is a lifelong experience, especially for the apostle Peter. So I want to look at a little bit about Peter. Because while the messengers from Cornelius' house are on their way to Peter, Peter goes up to pray on the roof at noon. But noon is not just prayer time, it's also lunchtime, right? So Peter's hungry, and he, while the brothers start fixing the food downstairs, you can imagine the smell is wafting up to the roof as he's praying, and all of a sudden he gets transfixed in the spirit with this bizarre vision, a blanket coming down from the sky, and on that blanket sit all sorts of animals, some of them kosher or clean according to Jewish dietary custom, but many of them are not. You have Reptiles, I picture some pigs and some iguanas falling down on the blanket. And the Lord says to Peter, Peter, get up, kill it, and eat it. And Peter, in classic Peter fashion, has a very confident reaction. He says to God, 
Lord, I know what you just said, but no way, Lord. By no means. I have never touched, eaten anything that is common or unclean. If Peter is anything, he is a confident man. But, but God's going to come back to him and says it again. Eat, eat. And finally, what the Lord says to him is, what God has made clean, do not call common. Peter's objection to God is a visceral reaction. Many of our cultural reactions are visceral. They are below the level of cognition. We feel them in our gut. Peter's literally never eaten a piece of pork in his life. And and pork probably just seemed utterly disgusting to him. And though I cannot be sure there was indeed a pig in that blanket, I do know from my reading this week that pork (laughs) was the most ubiquitous meat in the Roman diet usually consumed in the form of sausage, and Jewish people especially were seen as uppity for not wanting to eat pork, because everyone ate pork. But it is a visceral and cultural reaction that Peter's having, but it's also a theological one. It's a religious one. After all, he is a Jewish man, steeped in the scriptures, steeped in the faith, steeped in a whole collection of of traditions around both dietary practices, what the food you eat is, and who you eat it with. And he's saying, in effect, Lord, I'm just trying to be faithful to you. You've said it. I'm not going to eat it. So the question, the question is, is God being inconsistent here? Maybe you've been exposed to neighbors who have said to you, all right, if you want to follow that part of the Old Testament law, then you can't eat pork or shellfish. Anyone been exposed to that kind of argument? The thing is, people don't quite understand the transition that happens between Old Covenant and New Covenant. Let me illustrate it for you. There was a mother and a child standing on either side of a street. And in between them, let's say mother's over here, child's over here, and in between them is a moving line of traffic. So, at one moment, the mother says to her child, child, do not cross the road, right? And we pray. The child obeys the mother. 30 seconds later, the mother says to the child, cross the road. Is the mother being inconsistent? No. What has changed is the circumstances have changed. And that's what happens from Old Testament to New Testament, that the missional circumstances of the people of God has changed. So God has abolished those civil and ceremonial and culturally Jewish laws to open the doors wide, to open the floodgates of God's mercy to go out to ta ethne, all peoples, all nations. Cultural specific barriers have been brought down so that people everywhere can be welcomed into the kingdom of God. But Peter doesn't get it yet. He thinks that if anyone's going to come into God's kingdom, they need to convert to being Jewish. And from here on out in the story of the people of God, all the way into today, comes upon us all as disciples of Jesus the question, where are we elevating cultural practices and preferences to the level of religious morality? Where are we making our cultural values to be, thus saith the Lord, laws to declare who is clean and who is unclean, who is on the right side and who is on the wrong side? I know in my tradition of Presbyterianism, many people take things like worship styles, they baptize them in theological language, and they say this is what it means to be reverent before God. This is what it means to be respectful in worship or orderly. See what we do? 
we can often not defend that from a moral perspective, but we use language. This happens all the time with dress, the kind of clothes people wear, their vernacular and how they speak and the language they use about God and how in-depth their theological vocabulary might be or their systematic theology might be. We, of course, will know that in many times in the 18th through 20th century missionary movements, it was Western missionaries who came on the boat with colonizing nations and taught people in those nations that to become Christian is to become Euro. So get your dance, get your dress, get your way of speaking out of the church and, re and sing how great thou art. <laughs> right? Sing a Baptist hymn because that's the pure way of doing things. We have to be very careful to delineate what cultural things we are elevating to the place of morality. It isn't that these cultural things are necessarily bad, but when they are made ultimate things, they are bad. And oftentimes, as we know from the history of racism, they are built upon lies, mythologies, misunderstandings, and myopias. So I invite you, people of God, as God invited Peter to explore your yuck factor. Say, what's your yuck factor? It's those moments when you are exposed to a different culture than you in a moment, whether in the sanctuary or outside of the sanctuary, and your visceral reaction is to take a posture of judgment. This is wrong. Or, to say it more benign, this is weird, right? But God's goal for Peter is to move from a place of judgment to a place of curiosity, of self-exploration and deep listening being cautious before we pronounce that kind of moral judgment. So Peter wakes up from his vision, and he's left perplexed. He's saying, hmm, what does this mean? And then the doorbell rings. And Peter comes into direct connection with these Gentile Romans, and all of a sudden the vision that he just saw starts, starts to make sense in his mind. He had just heard, don't call anything unclean, don't call anything common. Then a bunch of Gentiles are at the gate, and things start to click for him. But who's our other character in the story is Cornelius. Cornelius is also a man in need of conversion, but his conversion is different. His is different from Peter, but his need is profound. He fears God. Do you see that in the text? He prays. He gives his money away. He is generous. He has been hospitable towards his Jewish neighbors. Yes, he is a good and decent person, just like many of your neighbors who you love and respect. But that doesn't mean that Cornelius doesn't need anything. And what does Cornelius need? He needs Jesus. He needs to hear the gospel of the kingdom of God. He needs the ministry of the Holy Spirit. He needs to know the one who can take away sin and take away the power of death. He's still a pagan dude. I mean, after all, later when Peter walks in, what does Cornelius do? He falls down to literally worship him because in Roman society, there were semi-divine human beings that could intercede between people and the gods. And he's tempted to literally worship Peter, because he is a pagan man. We have to be careful when we talk about the floodgates of the kingdom of God because we can confuse a modern notion of pluralistic tolerance and universalism with the multi-ethnic kingdom of God. All things are not equal. 
all belief systems are not valid. There is a way. There is a truth and there is a life. And Cornelius has been drawn into that. He senses there, there's something about the Jewish religion that is true. Their morality, the character of our God that they proclaim, their devotion, he's drawn in. Perhaps this is why God chooses Cornelius to be Peter's first initial Gentile encounter. Because some of the barriers have been lowered. And it leads me to ask some of you, people of God, who are you called to be spiritual companions with? Because two chapters ago, we saw that the Ethiopian eunuch had Philip. We saw that Saul had Ananias. We see that Peter has Cornelius. What spiritual companions has God put in your life to help you along the journey? But also, who has God called you to companion with? Whose knowledge of God might be incomplete and their heart might be seeking towards God and their face might be beginning to turn towards God, but they don't yet have the knowledge of the kingdom of God. God's people are called to be bearers of knowledge. Tellers of the truth of the way things are. And so here in our text, Peter's needs and Cornelius' needs meet head on. They both need one another. See, if Peter is going to fulfill Acts chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus' call for all of the disciples to be witnesses first to Jerusalem, then to Samaria, then to the ends of the earth, well, the church is going to need to learn how to overcome the barriers that exist between them as a largely Jewish community and the nations, the Gentile nations. And it isn't a stretch to say that what happens in this text, brothers and sisters, is the very reason you and I are sitting in this sanctuary today. Halfway across the world, full of all kinds of Gentile ethnicities and Jewish ethnicities in this room. If Cornelius, though, is going to have his needs met to hear the gospel and receive the Holy Spirit and be welcomed into the church and the family of God, he needs something too. So Peter and Cornelius' needs are going to meet, and the story now moves from a story of exclusion to a story of embrace. Embrace. Peter and his brothers travel his Jewish brothers, the brothers of the circumcision, they travel with those Gentiles sent from Cornelius' house back to Caesarea, back to that hometown of Cornelius. They finally arrive in the house, and Peter addresses, finally when he gets in there and he understands what's happening, he, he addresses the elephant in the room. Peter, we would say, practices cultural self-awareness. He says... You know that I'm Jewish. You can see that quite plainly. And I know that you're Gentiles. And you know we're not supposed to be together according to the social structures of our surrounding world, according to my religious custom, according to the way things are. I should not be here with you. But God. But God showed me a different way of being and a different way of seeing. This is a principle of intercultural intercultural and cross-cultural love. You have to start with cultural self-awareness. What Peter is able to do is to see his own culture. He doesn't just name things as normal or good or bad. He says, I am a Jew. You are a Gentile. And here's the social landscape of the world that we live in. Don't dichotomize intercultural competence from ministry in the kingdom of God because they move together towards love. And finally, Peter has his moment. (laughs) 
He's still trying to piece together just what he's, why he's there in the first place. And then Cornelius gives him the backstory, and Peter sees with his own eyes that, like, oh, God has set his favor upon Cornelius. And, and Cornelius said, all right, we're all here. Just picture, in this living room, Cornelius has got his auntie, his uncle, his grandparents, soldiers from his company, this whole room full of Gentile Romans. Peter is walking in. He can't feel very comfortable. And they say to him, all right, we're here. We got, <laughs> we got the snacks out for you. What do you have to say? And all of a sudden, everything locks into place for Peter. And the language is heightened here. Literally, it says he opened his mouth, but it could also be translated, he took a deep breath. And he said one sentence that is the whole thing I want you to take away from this passage today. He said, truly, I see it. God shows no partiality. Truly, I see that God shows no partiality. I want to explore this word. I want to do a little word study. Can I do that? Can I do a little Bible study? Because sometimes we read words in the English language and we say partiality. I mean, it's not a very exciting word. But when I, when I tell you the story of the Bible, I think that somebody might just get excited in here. Because it's a, it's a Christian word. The early Christians invented this word. And how they invented it is they took Greek words from the Old Testament, made some combinations, and combined them into this word called no partiality. And what the word literally means is that God lifts the face up of anyone bowed down to him. <laughs> That's the image. It's the image of somebody coming before God, being bowed down, prostrate, and God getting down on his hands and knees, lifting up the face of that one, looking that one right in the eyes and saying, I see you. I welcome you. The point is that it doesn't matter what kind of person is coming to bow before God. It doesn't matter how nice their clothes are. It doesn't matter how much they know about anything. It doesn't matter the language that they are using. The point is, if, if you turn your face towards God, he will turn his face towards you. All have the same access to God. In every nation, those who fear him and perform righteousness are acceptable to him. This phrase in every nation means ta ethne, all the ethnicities, all kinds of people. I like how Eugene Peterson translates this in the message. He says, it's God's own truth. Nothing could be plainer. God plays no favorites. We are always playing favorites because that's how we're trained to live in the world. But God does not operate on that plane of being. His ways are alternative. His ways are higher than ours. But I have to think that this phrase meant even more for Peter. And you see why? Because I think about the fact that this is the book of Acts, and I think about the same writer, he wrote the book of Luke. And I think about another time when Peter saw God's face looking back at him. It takes me back to the 22nd chapter of the book of Luke, if you'll let me go there. At a similar time when Peter had confidently said to Jesus, Lord, I'm willing to go with you to prison and to death. He said it with all the confidence he could muster. And Jesus said to him, I'm going to tell you something, Peter. 
the rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. Do you remember that story? And so Peter, later on, after the third denial, when Peter said to someone who asked him, are you with Jesus? He said, I don't know what you're talking about. The text says immediately while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed and the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the saying of the Lord and he went away bitterly. So maybe Peter is having a moment of remembrance in this moment here. And he's remembering if God didn't turn his face towards me in the midst of who I was to him, who am I to turn my face away from anyone who longs for my embrace? Who am I to exclude anyone? Who am I to call anyone unclean? When God saw all my uncleanness and chose in the midst of it to turn his face towards me and lock, me, lock eyes with me. If, I, if God didn't yuck my yum, I am in no position to yuck anyone else's yum. Flow with me here a little bit. If God set his favor on love on me, even in the midst of my great failures and betrayal, if he found me delightful enough, who am I to exclude anyone? Mm. If we are doing faithful ministry in a place, if we are living a faithful Christian life as a church, then we will know the cultural landscape of that place, the story of that place, the history of that place, and we will try to figure out who are we excluding and who do we need to turn our face towards. And so Peter, after this great moment, when he realizes his summary statement, God shows no partiality, he begins to proclaim the gospel to Cornelius. He gives Cornelius the word he's been needing about Jesus as a, as a Messiah who came preaching good news of peace, right? And for him as a Jewish man, the word peace has a long and storied history. And if you'll know, it harkens back to that biblical word, shalom. And shalom doesn't just mean nice. Shalom doesn't just mean the absence of conflict. It means the presence of wholeness and unity and harmony. And what Peter is saying that is that because of what Jesus has done, there can be true shalom between everyone. Because when Jesus hung on the tree, it was for everyone's sin. And when Jesus rose up from the grave, it was from, for everyone's greatest enemy, which is death. Every kind of person has sin. Every kind of person has one great enemy. And that's what Peter is saying in the gospel. And he's in the middle of his speech when the Holy Spirit decides to just go ahead and interrupt him. <laughs> Peter can't even finish his sermon before God's like, thanks, Peter. I'll take it. I'll take it from here. Thank you for being a good representative of me. But uh, I got this. And, and what you really realize in, at the end of this passage is that God has been the actor the whole time. <laughs> He's been the one aligning these paths of Cornelius and Peter. He was the one who worked in their life to, the, to get them to this point. And then finally, he, by the power of his Holy Spirit, rains down upon this whole room of Gentiles. And to the amazement of these Jewish brothers and sisters, they see that without converting to Judaism, without taking on their culture, somehow these Gentiles got the covenant mark of God, the Holy Spirit, and they begin praising God. And, and then Peter, his conversion is kind of fully realized. And he says, all right, if that's the case, who am I to deny these people baptism? Who am I 
to deny these people the covenant sign of God's faithfulness. Do you see Peter's cross-cultural conversion? Do you see that the Christian life is not a one-and-done journey? That God, by His Spirit, has to lead us in some paths to, to wake us up to some new realizations of what living in His kingdom means, of what proclaiming a cross-cultural life and love means? We're not going to preach this text, but shortly after this passage, Peter goes back home. And when he goes back home, his Jewish brothers and sisters got something to say to him. Because here's the, here's the thing. This story is beautiful. Cross-cultural life and love, they're beautiful. But uh, the church is always struggling. And what Peter's Jewish brothers and sisters are going to say to him is like, Peter, <laughs> we heard what you did. <laughs> Maybe Peter's homies who were with him were a little bit like, yeah, we ain't down with this. And they went back and reported what had happened. And Peter said, hey, I got a story to tell. I'm going to tell you what God showed me. Who am I to deny what God has made clean? Friends, if we come to a realization of the beauty of cross-cultural life and love and we move from exclusion to embrace, we then have to become those who advocate for embrace. Those who advocate across lines of difference and misunderstanding and to defend each person's welcome into the kingdom of God. This is the text today about a God who moves people from exclusion to embrace because they have found their life embraced by the grace of God. And that's the life we are called to today. Amen. Let's pray. for listening to this podcast from Grace Mosaic. For more information about our church, visit us online at gracemosaic.org.